You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 161. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. And leave us a review if you can, because we love those. And you can check us out at Coding and that we can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. And uh, hey, we have like email addresses and stuff that you can find there. You could like ping us. I don't know that you can, but you can <laughs> follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks or you can head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page, sans email addresses. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm poorly prepared. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Dub, dub, dub. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Learn in-demand tech skills without scrubbing through videos, whether you're just beginning your developer career, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. So last episode, we talked about replication, and we mentioned that we are strictly talking about data that is small enough to fit on a single machine. So each replica has enough, uh, has all of the data. And uh, we talked about the reasons why you would want uh, replication, like fault, failure, tolerance, scalability, geolocation, getting things closer to make them more performant. And we talked about three uh, old, from the 70s, uh, techniques for replications, single, multi, and leaderless. All right, now you're caught up. So this episode's standalone. And, and old didn't mean they're not used. It just means they're old. Yes. They are, like, literally very old. Well, I think what we discovered was that uh, everything that was ever good about computing was developed in the 70s and, you know, 50 years later, we're figuring out like, oh, that's pretty cool stuff that they did back then. (laughs) They just didn't have the horsepower to run it. They could get to the moon, but they couldn't do like, you know, anything across the internet. You know what that reminds me of? You remember when everybody was like, oh man, cell phones are going to be the next big thing for like the internet, right? Like it's going to be big, but for years and years and years, it just wasn't there. And then, and then it, then it was, they were all right, you know, 20 years prior. So, yeah. Yeah, good times. Yeah, everything's been like all algorithms come from like 1980 or, or before, and the rest has just been integrating with advertisements. Yeah, <laughs> basically, the the rest yeah. has been figuring out how to turn off tracking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you figure that out, could you let me know? That'd be amazing. yeah, no kidding, oh. no kidding. All right, well, so, so this that, episode, say what? <laughs> this episode, we're going to well, talk about oh. uh, problems with our application lag, and we're going to talk about multi-leader replication, which is the good stuff. Cool. All right. Well, how about first we say thank you to everybody who left us some reviews, and I'm going to let Alan take this first batch. Oh, look at this. So oh, I've look, got- see? It's so great. When you do the intro for the the, <laughs> the reason, you don't have to be the guy to say some of the names, right? Like, oh, that worked out perfect. Yeah, we got to remember that trick. time. We didn't put initials by anything. So, yeah, um, I've got, we're going to say Google Read here, uh, T. Bednarik, JJ Henasia, and Katie Crossing. And some excellent, excellent reviews there. So, thank you very much for those. And from Audible, we have Anonymous and Anonymous. Squared. And, and one of those Anonymous has said that they've been with us since day one. That's that's been a lot of days. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I call shenanigans because I'm like, no way, nobody would still be listening to us oh, after all these years. Surely you would have given up, right? Like we're we're approaching a decade, right? Like that's that's oh, crazy gosh. talk. Can you imagine? Wow. We're gonna have to do something special when we when we cross the ten year mark. Yeah. Um. 
I'd imagine it'll involve walkers and canes and stuff. <laughs> well, and obviously, <laughs> obviously, but I meant something else. Like, cause, cause we're like barely, uh, like less than a year and a half away. Right. If I remember right, it's 2013. Least, yeah. 2013. Yeah. yeah like uh-huh. it, was, yeah. it was September of 2013. If I recall, or yes, we're, maybe we're closer to two years. Sorry. We're just over yeah. two years. Right at two years. Math. Yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> that's why you, you got to leave that to the math of my chicken. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, so with that, I don't think we had any other news, right? Not this go around. Nope. All right. Cool. Just thanks. Yeah. So let's dive on in. Cause we got a lot of notes. So buckle up. <laughs> so first uh, we wanted to kind of continue on with, uh, apart from, it was kind of from the last section, but it really applies to, to all replication strategies we want to talk about um, sync and async writes now that we know a little bit more about things. And uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of review here. So, to you know, don't, don't worry if you missed the last one. But you should go back and listen to it. I'm, yeah, don't worry if you miss it, but just yeah. go listen to it. Just <laughs> download it at least. And yeah, I don't want you it. to worry. Don't, don't No stress needed here. Yeah, I just need to see the numbers. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, when we're talking about single or multi-leader replication, Remember that we said all writes go through the leaders. So if your application is read heavy, then you can add multiple followers to increase your scalability, right? That doesn't work well with synchronous writes. Remember, that's where you have uh, multiple followers and the leader makes sure that every follower has the data before it returns to the client says, I got it. So obviously, the more followers you have, the more latency you have for your writes, the more options you have for your reads. Yeah, because what you're saying is if you have one leader and you have 10 followers, that one leader can't return back and say, yo, I wrote this record until it knows that all 10 of the other followers had that same record written. So it has to wait for it all to finish. That's the safest way to do it. But, you know, like you mentioned, it increases latency. Also, uh, what if one goes down? Yeah, I was about to say safest, but also the most error prone. Right. Yep. Dangerous, right? You you could yeah, actually bring reason. your whole system down. Yeah. yeah. More dangerous yeah. way to do it. So that's the problem with synchronous rights. And then if you allow asynchronous rights, whereas where the client says, hey, update this or insert this, and the leader says, okay, we basically got it. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, then the problem is the data can be scaled. So the client can back and say, okay, fine. Well, here's a query. And that query goes to one of the replicas that doesn't have the data yet. And so it returns incorrect data. Uh, this is much faster, but the problem is that you can see uh, inconsistencies. And uh, there are certain use cases where this is like more prominent. And uh, well, I think we've got some examples coming up here. We call this eventual consistency. So if you've heard that, this is a term that was associated for a long time with NoSQL. But it's a problem anywhere you've got replicas. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that they called out here that I actually liked is they said eventual. They kept purposely vague because they didn't want you to think that there was some sort of time associated with it. Right. Like if, yeah. if you do your right is eventually going to be consistent. Is that a second from now? Five seconds? It could be an hour from now. Right. Depending on if there were network problems or anything in between the, the followers. So eventual is truly just, I don't know, sometime in the future. You'll get it when you get it. Right. Yeah. And uh, like I mentioned, some use cases can be particularly bad. The, the example I was trying to remember was um, like updating user information. So if you're trying to to update your, uh, say, your address and then check out, well, wouldn't it stink if you update your address and went to check out and the address wasn't updated? Uh, things like that can be confusing. The user goes back and tries to update the, the address and now it's there. What the heck? I hate the site. It's 
crappy programmers <laughs> or worse. You, you, you think you've updated your address. You, then you place that order and then realize that the address still shows the old address yeah. after you place the order. Yep. And all that stuff, uh, it happens. They actually you know what call that, what that, what you just said is interesting though. So there's one thing for the user to see something that is misleading you totally could have a system that when that order went through the the fulfillment phase, if it was pulling from an out-of-date uh, replica, now you've got major problems, right? So like we were talking about what you experience as a user, but man, if the, if the other systems aren't following some sort of consistency um, purpose, you could have a really bad setup on your hands. I mean, this, this is kind of... Uh, you know, tangent, tangent alert. Here we go. First one of the night. Uh, but uh, you, that's where like that type of use case specifically to e-commerce type transactions, depending on the size of the organization and the amount of traffic and whatnot, where it could warrant that um, the, the order itself, like there's no like foreign key reference to an address. Instead, it just has a copy, you know, like you could, you could envision like, you know, if you were to think about this in like a relational database, kind of like, or just a table kind of schema, what that might look like, like that, you know, that row might have everything, you know, for that needed for that, you know, payment information, shipping and billing all there instead of foreign keyed off to something. And then that way, you know, whatever it was that you displayed on the screen at the time is what got written to the ordering system, you know, maybe, but, but they did, I mean, speaking of e-commerce systems though, um, Later in this chapter, there were specifically Amazon was used as an example of where they had talked about uh, like updates to the carts, <clears throat> update to the shopping cart, not always uh, reflecting the change, mm-hmm. depending on like, you know, merge conflicts and eventual. Yeah, that's a problem. So especially if you're uh, Amazon scale and you're selling, you know, however, however many orders per you know minute or second or whatever. Uh, even a small percentage of failures like that is a big, big problem. The big takeaway for me from from this book was that it's important to know what your use case is and what your your storage mechanism is, because then based on those kind of things, then you could make the decision that like, <coughs> oh, hey, you know what? I'm going to remove an item from the shopping cart. And, you know, until you actually go to uh, you know, it's okay if it got like m- mistakenly added back, you know, as long as you hadn't like placed the order, right. If you're still in the shopping cart mode, that might be acceptable that it, that it get added back as part of a merge conflict, uh, thing, which we're getting kind of ahead, but you know, there might be other situations where like something like that would be totally unacceptable. And so knowing those, uh, the limitations of that, that storage architecture and its capabilities, especially as it relates to replication, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to, to be able to fit that within what you're trying to accomplish. <clears throat> and there's no perfect solutions. Yeah. So, no. you know, you, <laughs> that's why it's really particularly important to know what you got. And, uh, so there's a couple, uh, ways of mitigating this. So, you know, luckily we don't see these kinds of problems too often anymore. And that's because, uh, organizations have figured out how to kind of partially solve these problems. Uh, one interesting way of doing it is to read your rights. So we call it the <laughs> read your right consistency. And the deal is that you attempt to read significant data from the leader or uh, only in sync replicas 
that you know have your data. The one that the data that you wrote, the data that you just wrote, right? So yeah. that that's so this kinda, only helps you in some scenarios, like right. for example, if you know it's your address that you just updated, but if you're a bank account and someone else is withdrawing, that doesn't help you there. That's yeah. someone else's rights. But if you know that you're the only one like writing to this data, like the address example, then uh, you can basically make sure that you only read from uh, the, the leader, which always has it, or a replica that has your changes. And we'll talk about how you tell that for replica has your changes in a second. In general, the idea is to make sure that any uh, significant changes that you made to the data can be read back. So, for example, you could uh, query the data back to make, well, wait, am I getting ahead? Well, so what happens when you put the notes in so, too soon? So to to kind of go back to what he's saying, let's say that you update. Uh, I'm trying to think of something. Um, let's say that there's just some sort of product in your database, right? Let's just go the e-commerce route, and and you update the description on it. When you go back and you view that product, it'll know that you're <clears> the one that wrote that change, and so it's going to go to the same place to bring that record back. However, if Jay Z or Outlaw goes and looks at that same product they're not guaranteed to get that that same record back from the same place where it was written. And so they may have a stale version of the data. So that's what he's talking about with that read your rights thing is I get back what I wrote from the same place, but other people may get something else. I, I want to, well, I kind of want to say this in a different way. Um, it, it It's basically like picture you have a, a three server set up for your database replication or whatever. I don't even want to call it database because I don't want you to think relational. Whatever your storage mechanism is, you have three three servers that are getting the data replicated among them. It's basically like an affinity. Like when I make a connection, if I make my connection to server A and that's where I'm reading and writing my data to, when I write my data to A, I read it back from A. But Alan and Joe, while they're still, uh, you know, while I'm, working on it, they might be reading and writing from servers B and C at the same time. So they might not yet see my change until it uh, gets replicated over. <coughs> Correct. But but yeah. I have my session kind of has this sticky session affinity to, uh, you know, server A in that example. Yep. And, and so they mentioned a couple of ways to do this, right? Um, and this is, this was one that was kind of interesting that they were talking about is you can read important data from a particular server. And what they said is that's kind of very user specific. So an example they gave is if you are modifying your user profile on a website, you know, maybe it's Facebook or something, they know that you're the only person that can modify that profile. And so when you go retrieve that profile information, you'll always get it back from the leader. Right. So that was like a way of prioritizing important data based off who you are and what you're capable of doing. Yeah. Another way is to uh, basically after you make an important change that and only to do that you would be changing, you can read from a, a leader or a replica that, you know, has that particular change for some period of time. We call it five minutes. I'm going to just stick with this one because I know that it got my change because I just read read back and verified I got some sort of checksum or something that, that let me know that this replica has it. So this is who I'm sticking with and talking to until I'm pretty sure that things have gone gone around. 
I just thought of an example that's going to like totally kind of derail things that I'm like dreading giving, but I uh, just go for it. I think yeah. we've, I think we've kind of talked about this before though, but this totally isn't what, uh, Martin Kleppman was the author of the book was going after when in this particular section. <clears throat> but when it comes to like the, the important data, like one thing that came to mind as you were describing that was like, well, it could also be like data that like real time data versus not real time data. And so like the, in my mind where I went with it was like, okay, um, building your elastic search index, that's kind of costly, right? Like updates to that thing are, are not, uh, easy there. They comes at an expense, right? And, but you pay, you're willing to pay that expense because elastic search searching, you know, it, it's indexed in a way that makes searching fast. So you're willing to pay that cost. Right. And, but there might be other data that's like more real time and you don't want to take the hit to have it in that index. And so the example that was coming to mind was like going back to your product example was like, Oh, well you could easily have all your product description and attributes in your elastic index. And that way you could search it. And when you build, when you render the product page, you know, you could have a bulk of that data coming back from uh, the elastic search index, but you might also want to go and query a relational database to get like, Hey, what's the current quantity and what's the current price? Because those two things could fluctuate in real time. And, you know, you might want to be able to display like, Hey, we have this in stock, or maybe you want to like give your customers some kind of sense of urgency and say like, Hey, there's only like five more left in stock, you know? Right. So it's totally not where he was going with this, but the idea of like reading quote important data, um, you know, from, from one particular place is what made me think of that example. Well, you know, one place where I've actually seen this happen where you get different data back on even different page refreshes is uh, Reddit used to be really bad about this. Oh yeah. If you submitted something, you'd see a certain number of upvotes. And if you refresh the page, then it might be way higher or way lower. And it's like, wait a second, how'd that happen? If you refresh again, then it'd be a different number. It's like, no, th look, I know that five people didn't just do this within the past five milliseconds, you know, like that didn't happen. Even better than that. Like you'll, you, you go to Reddit, you submit your post and then you refresh the page and your post isn't there. And you're like, I know I did it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wait, what, what happened? So, so th these are real problems, right? Like they're, they're not, Easy. Yeah, so the, the read your write strategy would be an example where we say, you know what, the votes, uh, those are, that's other people doing that. We don't care about that. People are going to see some fluctuation. But if you submit data, then we want to make sure that after you submit, you always read from the leader or you only read from an in sync replica. So it was, so you don't end up double submitting or getting confusing. So that might be an example where we might say this data comes from one source and this data comes from another. Yep. Uh, another one that we had here was the client can keep a, a timestamp of its most recent write. And then that way, when they go to read this back, they can check that against the data that's on the server or whatever to make sure that they're getting something back. And I'm sure that you guys probably remember this from like SQL Server. You have the the row. Oh, man, what's it called? Um, it wasn't version, was it? Oh, huh? what was it? Row version? Row version, yeah. Okay. It, it's actually a way... It, when you're not talking about replication, it's a way to make sure that you're not writing. Um, you're not, you got data back and then you're trying to update it, but you don't want to update with stale data. So you can check that row version to make sure that you're not trying to write with an old thing that you had. Um, but this, this is very similar, right? Like that whole notion is 
you have two pieces of data, one that's, you know, time-based and then the other one, that's the, the other one that you can sort of verify that, you know, Hey, I'm at least getting something as new as what I thought I was. You know, it's funny. You kind of, um, you hinted at something else that uh, a little bit more had notes. I'll skip ahead, but, um, they call it monotonic reads, which like the red example, you refresh, you see five, you refresh, you see a hundred, you refresh again, you see seven. It's jumping up and down. It's really bad user experience. What if we use something like a row version and we got that row version back and said, if we see a read that's older than the, the highest row version I've seen so far, just use the one I've seen before. So you're doing some sort of session caching. And that's a way of making sure that the number only ever goes up. So instead of going five and then 100 and then seven, it would go five and 100. And then when it sees the seven, it's like, whoa, this is an old read. So I'm going to stick with the 100 because it's a better user experience. Neither one's right. But you know what's funny? You know what's, what's funny that? about that is is that sounds good, but then we we'll talk about in a little while where that also falls apart. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's unreal. Like it, these are really hard problems. Anything to do with the timestamp though was immediately like as I was reading, it, I was like, oh, I could think like that's so easy yep. to like make fall apart, right? You know, like yeah. I just change the time on my clock, you know, yep. like or right. or what happens if you know maybe I'm not doing it to be malicious, but it's just like legitimately like. Uh, daylight savings times for my time zone kicks in or something like that. And now it's like all the problems that we've discussed about like the server time and my time. And, you know, it has to know my time zone as well. And like, it just, it's mess. just, it's just problematic. And then, yeah. and then it's like, okay, well, what if I'm on multiple devices? Like, you know, and you know, who's to guarantee that those devices are synced up time wise. Right. I mean, they're not mostly, you know, there was definitely a period of time where like, yeah, maybe your phone would recognize that you had gone to a new location. And so it would update the clock, but Mm. your laptop didn't used to. Right. Yeah. You know, so you got off the plane and you know, your phone's like, Hey, local time is this, but your computer's like back at home. So speaking of which you just hit on, what if you're on multiple devices, right? So you, you're on your laptop and you update something on the site and then, then you get on your phone and you do it. Yep. So did we see your user and always make sure that user reads from the same replica? I do that all the time, by the way. Yeah, I, I do too, honestly. Like yep. like important emails. I'm like, okay, let me make sure, you know, if I can see the if I can see it in the sent uh box on my phone, then my OCD will let me go to sleep knowing that I sent the email. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or I'm sorry, uh, my, my CDO. I I had it out of order. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> We mentioned the clock thing too. Um, when we say clocks, specifically, you know, like a lot of times in this book, when they use the word clock, they could mean like clock on the wall, like time clock, or they could also mean like a, a logical clock, which could be something like the number of reads or number of writes that have happened ever in the history mm-hmm. of the database. So it could be like, we call it a clock, but it could just be like some sort of Counting. number that means something else. Yeah. Um, consistent prefix reads. This is another, uh, it's, the name is always confusing to me, but the, the idea is if you think about uh, causal data, so something happens, something else happens because of that first thing. So like an order shipping, you can't ship an order until the order has been placed, right? And the order maybe can't be placed until the user has created an account. Those are three things that have to happen in order. And in that case, they happen, you know, at least minutes apart in practice. But you can imagine, you know, other things that happen a little sooner. What happens if your replica gets information about the shipping before it gets information about the order being placed. 
Right. And this goes back to what I was saying falls apart on the one that you were saying earlier is like, hey, what if I just check to make sure I'm always incrementing, uh, you know, my number, my timestamp, whatever. The problem is exactly what you're just saying, uh, you know, order shipped. OK, so that's newer than what I had before. But but now when I get order, you know, order placed comes in after it, that's an older record. So it's going to be like, no, order ship. That's it. So yep. it's it's just a weird state that you can get into where it's like, well, you couldn't have shipped the order before you placed it. So why did I not get the notification that the order was placed? Like it's it's hard. Well, unless unless you sign up for the Amazon Yesterday service. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. <laughs> well, well, that used to be Prime. Yeah. <laughs> now it's Amazon Next Week. <laughs> That's right. So Wonderful. check out this idea. So uh, the idea of consistent prefix reads. The idea is that uh, essentially that you partition the data. So you could say, for example, all uh, order information from a single user always gets routed to the same uh, replica first or the same partition first. And that way it's impossible for a reader to get one of those items without the others, because it, we know that all information is always going to some replica or is always being read from the same replica. And this is something that Kafka makes big use of with their keying strategies. And so they'll basically make sure that, uh, information that is keyed the same way always ends up in the same partition so that you're always reading things in the order that they happened. And, and that's basically the idea here. And from our experience, like this is, pro- this is just real world stuff that we've run into. Like that, that sounds good and it does solve some problems. Right. But when you start writing particular data to certain partitions, that actually introduces other problems. Like if you need, you know, some sort of global, uh, uh, keen management or windowing time windowing stuff, man, it makes everything hard. Like it, it's like you solve one problem really well. And then you introduce a monkey wrench into some other problems and, and it just constantly goes on. So, I mean the, the windowing issue actually became a real problem for us when we were doing partitions for, for different, you know, types of data on different partitions. And then it's like, Oh, well you can't, you can't join them. Like Kafka kind of won't let you do it in a good way. Well, uh, where I was going with it in my mind was like hotspotting. Like you you have to be careful that your, your keying strategy doesn't, um, start moving more things into a single partition at a time. Cause then you lose all the efficiencies of having everything partitioned. If, if you're only, you know, if you have like 10 partitions and you're only ever writing to two of them, Great. That doesn't do you a lot of good though. So again, you solve one problem, but I mean, so just what Joe said is like, if you have all reads for a certain customer going to a single partition, well, what if that customer is just a massive customer, right? Yeah. Like now they're destroying that one partition. They lose the benefit of partitioning in the first place. So it's like, ah, (laughs) 99 of your customers are like little small mom and pop shops that might have fewer than, you know, five to 10 employees. But one of your customers is a large enterprise that has, you know, a hundred thousand employees. Yep. And that one is being, is only being written to the one partition. Well, their, their read and write time is going to be severely impacted in that, in that case. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's funny. It is really hard. And that's the kind of thing is like, uh, you know, we said these algorithms uh, are from like the seventies. However, as you've seen, every single one of them is like, Oh, you want replication? You just blah, blah, blah. And then someone says, well, what if, and then it's like the algorithm thinks for a couple seconds and says, well, you just, 
And <laughs> real world says, what if? And it, so it, the, these things just go on and on forever. And they're, well, like, like we said, there's no perfect solution for any of this stuff. All these things have mitigations. The mitigations aren't perfect. There are trade-offs involved. Every single bit of this is hard to get right. And that's why we say the algorithms are from the 70s, but no one's really got it right yet. Hey, by the way, man, this, all right, so tangent number two, I guess. Here we I, go. So, you're right. I, I think this is worth a talking point is it is easy to what if things to death, right? So an example, like what, what we were just talking about is, well, what happens if, if we have hotspotting or what happens if we have this, like what's easy to do as developers and managers and, and people doing this stuff is it's easy to be like, well, we can't do this because, because that's going to happen. It, and that's like pretending you live in this, you know, unicorn world where what you have already is perfect. And that's not the case. So I think the important thing to do is to look at what your needs are, right? Like what are your most important needs? What are the most impactful things you can do? And then say, does this solve that problem? Right. Instead of, well, what about this? Like you can die by a thousand cuts when you're trying to come up with edge cases, but really what you need to focus on is what is my 98%, my 95% that I'm trying to hit and go after that. Just as a thought. Really good point. I tell you, like, it's easy to kind of read this chat and be like, man, replication is awful. We should not. <laughs> it's like, well, there's some things you can do if you're willing to deal with some of these problems that you can't do any other way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I don't want to skip ahead, but I kind of want to skip ahead. Um, so I'm going to say this now, but don't listen to it until later. Okay. There you go. But, but, you know, cause there's a portion later in the book where they're talking about, uh, where you have, uh, multiple replication points, right? Under the leaderless, uh, concept. And they're talking about like a calendar app, right? As like, you know, one, one, a uh, replica is your, your phone. One might be your computer. Another one might be a, a tablet, whatever. But like each one of those could do rights concurrently. Like no single thing is the, is the leader in that case. And I was trying to think like, man, like I never really thought about the complication, but like think about it. If you had to like write it from scratch, how you would deal with any kind of conflict resolution in that type of scenario. Right. Um. So, yeah. So, I, I I mean, I don't have the answer for it, but it was just what came to mind though. It's like, you know, one of the cool things that I, I mean, really I've said it before, but it, it's things like that that make you think about things that you wouldn't ordinarily do in your like day to day job, which is why I love this book. By the way, I should mention too, like I'm actually rereading the book. That's how, that's how good this book is. Right. So if you haven't read this book, you need to get a copy of this book. So leave us a comment. And uh, you can get a chance to to win a copy of this book because you and need this book in your life. Codingblocks.net slash episode one six one. Yes, leave a comment. But yeah, you're you're definitely right. I I know that I'm personally uh, bad about the um, like the whatisms. You know, like well, I don't know. Let me think. What about if this happens or what about if that happens? And like, I catch myself doing it sometimes or like, especially I catch myself doing it sometimes when it's in like a public forum. I'm like, Oh man, why did I say it now? Cause now I just derailed the whole conversation by accident. 
It, it, the problem is, though, I mean, like man, me and me and uh, Bobby, one of our friends, we were talking the other day, and that's what you do. You you bring up things that have been painful to you in the past, right? So, so you bring it up. You're like, well, what about this? I mean, I've spent a lot of time dealing with this stuff in the past, and so you bring those things up. So it's not bad to do, but it's always important to keep in mind what. Do the benefits outweigh the cons, right? Are the pros way heavier on the scale than the cons are? And that's where you kind of, you have to do it with everything. So it's hard not to, to, to try and attack everything and be like, well, does it do this? Does it handle that? Does it handle this? And the answer is always no, it doesn't do everything. It can't. Otherwise, there would be one system on the planet that everybody used and none of this other stuff we'd even be talking about. Right. Well, and that's, that's another thing, another like eye opener about this book. I mean, between this book and like the, the Uber engineering blog, for example. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, it just illustrates so perfectly why like you cannot think about having just one data storage as the only place that your data is going to live in that, like that one data store is going to solve all your needs because even in this book, you know, in one of the previous chapters, they talk about, you know, uh, online transactioning databases versus OLAP databases and, and, you know, why each one is structured for a particular type of purpose. You know, the indexes are, are structured in such a way for a different type of query. Right. You know, I mean, that's just one example. And we've talked about the Uber engineering blog, which if you've never checked that out, we'll include a link to it. But I mean, you see the, um, the, the journey that Uber has taken over the years and the, the, um, transformation that they went from like one, you know, just building their platform out and the way the you know, different data systems were incorporated into it, just a great example of why, like there are legitimate reasons why it is okay to have multiple copies of your data for specific purposes and don't and try to fool time. yourself into thinking like, I don't want to copy my data around. This is the only place I'm going to have it. And you need to do everything from that one database. Yeah. It's not even just okay. And in, in a lot of places it's preferred. Right. Um, so yeah. So let me say, we're saying like, um, there's no one database to rule all use cases. No. You know, if you're uh, if you're a mom pop restaurant or something, you could probably get away with MySQL. Just want to clarify. Yes, totally. Yeah, no, not everybody is an enterprise, right? Not everybody um has the data needs for an Elasticsearch and a and a SQL server and a Cassandra and a, you know, yeah, totally. That's pretty cool if you do have those needs. <laughs> there are certainly interesting problems to solve with those needs. Uh, yeah, so on to multi-leader replication. Remember, we talked about single leader last time where you have one thing that takes all the rights and then uh, you can read from any with some caveats. Uh, multi-leader solves the problem of a single point of failure for rights, uh, which is pretty nice. And the deal is that it allows more than one node to receive rights. So I don't really think of that the first time. So, uh, so just to put some um, illustrations around this, like as you're thinking through this in your head, right, the – our, our canonical reference that we gave to the last episode for single leader, I'm going to, I'm going to say it was the canonical. I don't care if you agree or not, uh, was Postgres, right? Where like you could have a multi, uh, you know, a replica system, but there would be one node, one primary node that would be responsible for all their rights, but the reads could be distributed among the prime, uh, among, among the secondaries. 
And our canonical reference for a multi-leader replication, and we discussed this even in the last time because I questioned like, hey, what would be a good example of this, was Kafka. Because in the case of Kafka, you can have a topic spread across multiple brokers um, across, you know, you can have that topic split into partitions. Those partitions can then be spread across the brokers and there's an in-sync replica. There's a leader elected for each partition of the topic and you can see which replicas are in sync uh, using some of the Kafka tools to, to view the in sync replica count or list rather. Yeah. And um, one thing to point out too is that the replication still basically happens the same way. So everything we said about uh, the last episode about kind of um, the leader publishing some sort of like, you know, operation log or something, we talked about a couple of different strategies for that still happens. This The only thing is that you have multiple leaders and each leader can act as a follower to another leader. So maybe, um, you know, in the Kafka example, you can be the leader for this part topic partition and a follower for this topic partition or another one. So the only thing that, that throws me off about the Kafka thing is I think in true multi-leader replication is I think if we were going to say Kafka was a true multi-leader replication thing like that, then you could write to any one of the brokers for any of the partitions. And then that mm-hmm. would also be replicated across the other ones, which I don't think is the case. I think, I think it's just what you said outlaw, which is, you know, a broker is chosen as a leader for a particular topic partition, whatever. So, so I guess here's what I'm getting at. Okay, fine. I think I think the the way that multi leader is set up is if you were to have in and I can't think of a database system off the top of my head. I know there I know that Postgres will do it with other tools, and there are other databases that will do it with other tools built on it. But let's just say, for example, uh, you have three MySQL databases, right? And they're all leaders. That basically means you could write to uh, MySQL A. Joe could write to MySQL B and I could write to MySQL C and they're all going to replicate their changes across to each other. Right. So that's what the true multi-leader is, is the same. Each one of them can be, can take in the rights and then they'll replicate those changes out across. When you're right, you're right. So another way of saying that then is in the Kafka example that I gave, why that doesn't work is because it's still a single leader replication strategy, just at a more granular level. Right. Right. <sighs> fine, Alan. Fine. <laughs> I just, I didn't want to miss. Yeah, leader, no, but. sure. Sure. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Can we have a tangent instead? Yeah, no, we, we probably could. I'm just kidding. Uh, right, I am so, trying to remember because they did call out some other technology. I mean, you are right. They did mention specifically like, um, Golden Gate for Oracle or BDR for Postgres or Tungsten Replicator for MySQL that would allow those traditionally uh, single leader um, relational databases to operate in this multi-leader fashion. But I thought there were some other ones like a Cassandra or something maybe, but I can't uh, remember. Uh, there, There is one, but we're not going to say it right now because it goes back to something you guys said earlier, mm. um, but we're going to wait till we get there. Um, so, so we here's, can guess it here, until we get to it. We could, but that, that might be boring for everybody. Oh. <laughs> so when do you use multi-leader replication, right? Like this sounds like a win-win to a certain degree. Um, it sounds like a complication. It might be, right? Well, they say you usually don't want to have multiple leaders in the same data center, right? So 
I know the three of us, we work in cloud applications and stuff. And we were just recently talking about like disaster recovery type things, right? Like you typically want to have um, your data in multiple different regions, right? It, let alone data centers, um, but but at least multiple data centers. So you wouldn't have two leaders in the same data center. It just doesn't make sense. You're complicating things for no good reason. So you might have one in the Southeast and then you might have one on the central East, right? Something like that, which I don't even think is a, is a data center, but I'm, if, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that you wouldn't have them in the data, same data center because your use case might warrant it maybe, but it's definitely they, easy for us to think if we, if we take like a global kind of stance at this as from an application that is like, uh, like a, you know, a google.com or something where like maybe it, it needs to be spread out geographically as well as having, having that spread out for redundancy, then uh, the multi-leader might make more sense. Yeah. They did say that typically you wouldn't do it in the same data center only because the, the complications may outweigh the benefits at that point. Right. So not saying that somebody doesn't for any, any good reason, right? Like there probably is, but, but at well, least across data centers. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I was thinking that maybe you would is like, if you were in an environment where you have like heavy, heavy, you know, traffic to it, even for like internal use, then, you know, maybe you would, but I, nothing that's comes into this coming to mind though. But, um, cause everything that I'm thinking of is more like just bandwidth, not necessarily transactions. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard to come up with those. I can't think of a multi-leader replication database, uh, where, uh, like I can think of ones like Elastic or Kafka. They kind of have something like that, but there's a little kind of nuance that keeps them from kind of fitting this textbook different definition. But remember, we're talking about cases where the replicas are 100% of the data. Like no partitioning involved. And I just can't think of a single database system that's got like a kind of notion of having multiple leaders that is also you know 100% of the data. So I, I thought some know. of the Mong- I thought some of the NoSQL type document type databases were like this, like maybe a Mongo yeah. or a Cassandra or something. Well, but Cassandra's I meant to be horizontally scalable on the data, not, not they contain each, the full set leaderless. on a node. Right. Oh, yeah. That's endless. the only one I know that's leaderless, but well, uh, I tried looking Dynamo. at Mongo Dynamo. I saw, I looked at both of those on dbengines.com and they have a section on replication and both of them was like, yes. It's like, Oh, <laughs> Well, I mean, Dynamo right. DB is the book's canonical reference for a uh, leaderless database, okay. and and in fact, they refer to, um, you know, the, the whole leader. They they we're skip, we're skipping way ahead, but the whole idea of leaderless uh, Amazon kind of like brought back that you know resurgence of the idea of a leaderless database with Dynamo, and so now databases that are dynamo or that are uh leaderless like that they're referred to as like dynamo like hmm. interesting yeah i mean again we're we're more talking about when you have a postgres database that is fully replicated across multiple nodes and you can write to any one of them at any given time right so yeah so one of the things that they said is they have this interesting approach for a data center to where they have leaders and followers similar similar to the single leader, right? So within the data center, you have a leader, and then you have followers. And then across multiple data centers, you then have a leader 
in that data center with followers in that one, but that leader is a follower to the other data centers, right? So it kind of spiders out is basically what happens. And that's usually across multiple data centers. And they drew a picture in the book that is pretty helpful to look at. Um, so if you have it or if you win it, um, well, we can describe you know, it. Go take a look at that. But it's basically like a chained single leader setup. Is we can really describe it. it Hold on. Give us a minute. <laughs> we draw some triangles and pyramids and stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was I, basically I like it was. No, if I remember the drawing that you're referring to, though, it was basically like uh, a document gets written to Alan. Alan tells Michael. Michael tells Joe. Right. That if was there the, across multiple data centers. Yeah. Yep. But that's the chaining that you're referring to. Yeah. So the chaining is data center one has leader one and then followers, right? Data center two has leader and then followers. So the leader from data center two is following the leader from data center one. So it's, it's weird. Your leaders are kind of following other leaders and then the followers are all following those, their leaders. So it, it, yeah, it kind of spiders the, out. That's why I was trying to use the phone book or the, or the telephone game example as like a way of just describing it from from the server point of view and not care about the the users. Yeah, a lot of the it, I, I will say that is one thing that the book did a good job of here. Well, I mean, most everything, but they do draw out the pictures to where it's easier to visually see how the how the data is moving across the topology. And I wanted to say, too, uh, I, I think I, I talked about it the wrong way. I kind of made a distinction as a, of databases being either single-leader or multi-leader replication. And that's kind of not really the case. Uh, basically, the deal is that a lot of the databases that support single-leader replication also support multi-leader. They just have a mile-long list of caveats and things you have to do. So, like, Postgres supports multiple leaders. Uh, you'll frequently see it um, listed as master-master. So, if you actually Google master-master replication databases... I found a pretty big list. And so uh, Oracle's on there, Microsoft SQL, uh, MySQL's on there, Postgres. But uh, with usually with external tools, though, that's what they were calling out. Yeah, external it's, it's tools. built or, into yeah. it. Yeah, yep, in so a lot of cases. across or whatever. So it's kind of like one of those things where like, yeah, it really is just like a, a kind of a complication where they can figure out how to make it work, but they'd rather not. Right, yeah, that that's kind of the thing. Um. So... They also then go into compare the single leader versus multi leader replication, and and like some of the things that they were looking at were performance, right? So performance is actually faster multi leader, which sort of makes sense because you can have writes occurring in each data center independently of the other data centers, right? So that makes sense. You're not you're not hitting latency for you trying to write something from you know the west coast over to the east coast data center, right? Um, and the synchronization of that data we talked about earlier that can happen asynchronously. So behind the scenes, you, after you do your write, that thing gets replicated across. So that's good. Um, fault tolerance in single leader, everything is on pause while you're electing the new leader. In the multi leader, you don't have that problem, right? Like, or you only have it in one data center. So, so you're not pausing everything. So that's fast. Um, in the multi-leader, the other data centers can continue taking writes while the other one is catching back up after the new leader was elected, right? So again, that's all pretty amazing things, all in favor of multi-leader um, replication. 
definitely makes uh, it sound like you're making the case to like replica uh, multi-liter replication is always the better thing. And it's just, it's just so easy guys. Like you just, you go into the YAML, that's what you're going to configure. Uh, you know, it's probably not YAML though. It's, it's just, might, yeah, yeah totally. it might just be XML or JSON or whatever it is, but you know, you're going to, you're going to flip a bit there and turn it on. You mean, yeah, of course I want multi-liter replication and uh, re restart the application and boom, it's done. I mean, it, it, here's another one that makes it sound like, yes, what you just said is absolutely true. Even if there's network problems, if there's network problems in a single data center, your other data centers are unaffected. They're still taking writes. They're still doing things. So your multi-leader setup is still more fault tolerant, more capable of continuing. So yeah, it sounds like, well, I mean, that's it. Yeah, let's just go set this up. Set, let's be honest though. Like what happens when that network does come back? What happens when like, you know, let's pretend, let's go back to the example that I gave, I think in the last episode where it was like, you know, the, the country gets split in half internet wise, you know, the East coast can't talk to the West coast, but there's a replica in each place, you know, so there's still reads and writes that might be happening in each. And now it comes time, like when that, uh, connection gets restored and you got to like sync that data back up and pray that there's no collisions, uh, no conflicts. (laughs) Right. You know, yeah, I mean, but- it makes you think like, like, how would you key your data for that type of scenario? Right. Like, so this goes back to what my comment that I made earlier is that knowing what your, your data strategy is going to be, the storage engine, how, how the storage engine is going to work, what the replication strategy is going to be matters. And you need to think about that so that you can decide like, okay, well, if I'm going to key it in this way, I need to make sure that my keys can, you know, ma- can, can handle this type of scenario, right? And, and and you just hit on the one thing. Like, we just listed off a ton of reasons why multi-leader is amazing. You just hit on the one thing that makes it almost all completely fall apart, which is if if they can't communicate for some period of time, and now it's got to reconcile everything when it all comes back up, like, that's not small. <laughs> that's That's not... That's not insignificant, right? Well, I mean, you hope it's insignificant because it was only like a small blip when, when you know, for the outage. You hope but, it wasn't you know, a day's outage, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, just that one thing is a massive, massive thing that you have to consider if you're going to go the multi-replication, the multi-leader replication route, because that is that is a big deal. That's why my blog now, uh, I've got uh, nine total MySQL instances. I've got three regions, uh, one liter, two replicas in each. And uh, yeah, it's really expensive to host a blog. But if I ever wrote any posts, then it, uh, inserts would be pretty nice. And I don't have to worry too much about network partitions. When Fastly went uh, down, it didn't matter because, first of all, I had no traffic. But also, <laughs> I'm built for that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh. Oh man. So here's the other thing. We mentioned that that Postgres and these that there's usually like third-party tools that that allow for this multi-leader replication. So one of the problems that they say is it's typically bolted on after the fact, right? Like this isn't something that was built into those database engines to be able to handle. So a lot of these things are handled in a way that maybe isn't perfect for for data that's stored all in one place. Um Dealing with auto-incrementing keys, that's a big deal. Um, Triggers, constraints, right? Like if you have triggers that go, you know, funnel through and update a bunch of different tables when something happens, 
How do you handle that when you're trying to, to sync things back up? And if you have constraints, check constraints, anything like that as well on your tables, that's all business logic that's got to be reconciled at some point when this data comes back together. So they said that these alone, those things that we just said are reasons to avoid multi-leader replication. Yeah, I like that. So you start off like, okay, so multi-leader is better than single leader uh, in every way except for uh, the real world <laughs> problems that arise that actually make it much worse. Don't do it unless you have to. It, it, it's truly funny. It's set up to help you avoid the problems of things like networks that go down and all that. But then the very thing that it's set up to help you with is the one thing that will crush you when it all comes back up. Yep. This is distributed systems in a nutshell right there. It, it really, <laughs> it really is. Yep. Yep. This is why you just got to like go, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta just stay active, find some kind of other activity to get rid of all the, all of the frustration. Cause like dealing with this kind of, this kind of stuff is just, you know, you need like a punching bag to, to take that out on. Or, bag. or yoga or, you know, cycling or whatever. Okay. You know, I mean, I was waiting for a punchline that none, none came. You were being serious. No. Well, I mean, I think I, I think I did make a yoga joke, but it was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> there we go. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I'm not that predictable, Alan. Sorry. I've known you for a while. Fine. Do you really want a joke? That one sure, was yeah. Graham, by the way. Uh, how how does the moon cut its hair? Uh, I don't know. Eclipse it. Oh, geez. Uh, I even thought about this. I just kept thinking about a moon with a bowl cut and how silly that would look. <laughs> I had a bowl cut. Didn't we all at some point? Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah. If you're allowed in the 90s, I had steps. Bull cut. I had the oh, vanilla ice man. steps. Oh, no. Yes, sir, man. I would have said that. Oh, that, dude. I had the flat top and everything, man. It's not getting yeah. cut out. Oh, yes, God. Sir. I want this picture. Oh, I want this picture. <laughs> Holy moly. I know your wife. I'm going to find a picture of this. This is going to happen. Oh, that, <laughs> that just up, might be yeah. the hero image for this episode. Studly Alan. Maybe we'll yeah. get a picture up here for the next episode. <laughs> That'd be so Fantastic. It'll be the first non-pet uh, picture <laughs> since know, like the 90s. I don't know. You put those nasty slugs on a couple episodes ago. My gosh, man. <laughs> those were snails. They were pretty. Ugh. <laughs> Ew. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Educative.io offers hands-on courses with live developer environments all within a browser-based environment with no setup required. With Educative.io, you can learn faster using their text-based courses instead of videos. Focus on the parts you're interested in and skim through the parts you're not. Now, I mentioned uh, last episode that uh, I was working out through the Grokton the Advanced System Design Interview, uh, which is a follow-on from the massively popular course from Educative, uh, Grokton the Advanced Systems, uh, rather, Grokton the System Design <laughs> I can't speak Easy right for you to say, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> what I was trying to get at is that uh, they had a section on Kafka and the design Kafka, which is really nice. And so I worked through that, got a hundred percent on the quiz 
at the end there. And then I searched Show off. Uh, Kafka on the website just to see what they got and found my next course, which is a microservice architecture practical implementation, which has got 112 lessons, 71 quizzes, 10 playgrounds, and 92 illustrations. Oh, man, that sounds amazing. So I was also on there looking around because of all these enterprise things that I've been dealing with, right? And and they've got an amazing course on Spring. So if you are looking to up your enterprise Java development game, go check out their Spring course, which is just excellent. They got a ton of good information in there. And maybe that's not your thing. So guess what? They've got some brand new courses like Coding Career Handbook. Uh, they've got the DevOps for Developers Learning Path. They've got Decoding the Coding Interview. Basically, whatever your uh, path is that you would like to learn on, I guarantee you're going to find a bunch of great courses there or even learning paths. So it would be collections of a whole bunch of things. Like They've got you covered. And the so, newest- Oh, yeah. Sorry, I got so excited. Go ahead. I know. It's so exciting to talk about it. I was just going to say, be sure to check out their best-selling uh, Grokking the Interview Prep Series. Um, it's... Yeah, you know, they have the courses like Grokking the System Design interview that Joe couldn't say earlier, but they also have uh, Grokking the Coding interview as well. Well, I, I wanted to tell you about the newest edition, Grokking the Machine Learning interview, which actually focuses on the system design side of machine learning by helping you design real ML systems, such as an ad prediction system. It's the only course of its kind on the internet. Yeah, so go ahead and visit educative.io slash coding blocks to get an additional 10% off an educative, educative unlimited annual subscription. You'll have unlimited access to their entire course catalog. But hurry, they don't keep these deals that often. So that's educative.io slash coding box to start your subscription today. Okay, so uh, you've heard us say this before, and especially uh, if you have listened since the beginning, you know, since episode one, like Anonymous has, then uh, you've probably heard us say this once or twice where, you know, hey, if you haven't left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it uh, if you would. They really do put a smile on our face and uh, mean a lot to us when we read those. So you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So, a few episodes back, we asked, how do you prefer to be interviewed? And your choices were behavioral interview. Tell me all about your mother. That sounds wrong. We actually said that as like the thing. I didn't make these up. That can't be right. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's clearly an outlawism. <laughs> that, don't blame me. Okay. Well, let's move on. Uh, your next choice was... Take home project. How many hours do you really spend? Or whiteboarding, like surfing, but worse. <laughs> or multi person interrogation room, like firing squad, but better. Or informal dinner, because that's not creepy. Or weird esoteric. How many angels can dance on how many ping pong balls on a plane with three potential destinations? You know, I did. I actually wrote these. That's why. That's why you hate them. That's that's why. That explains so much. <laughs> yep. Okay, so uh, this is one sixty one. So odd number. Alan goes first. Man, Thanks to awesome. uh, Tetco's trademarked 
uh, algorithm for who goes first? Yeah. I mean, I got to say too, these are, these are all amazing answers and equally terrible. So oh. <laughs> emphasis on the equally terrible part. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know that anybody loves these processes. So, um, man, I think, I think people are going to say whiteboarding <laughs> like surfing, but worse. <laughs> Pretty bad if that's the best. Yeah, I mean, out of all these, this is that seems like the one where you're at least trying to take some of your nervous energy and place it somewhere else, right? So uh, I'm going to go with that, and I, man, there's there's several here. I'm going to go with thirty percent. Okay, uh, I'm going to say uh, multi-person interrogation room, uh, like a firing squad, but better. Uh, and I'm going to say fifteen percent. To win. <laughs> okay. Alan that's, that's goes percent, with... right? What was that? That's a, that's a percent, right? I forget. Yeah, I think, I think you're close. You're somewhere in the in the math mathematical realm of something. There were numbers in it, so I'm going with it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Alan goes with whiteboarding for, t- what was it, 30% of the vote. 30, yep. And Alan... Uh, Alan. And Joe goes with a multi-person interrogation room with 15%. Correct? Yep. And the answer is take home project for 30%. Wow. Okay. I guess the heat's not on when you do that, right? Like you can cheat sort of. (laughs) Oh, I'd be anxious for days. I don't know about you get time to cheat. I mean, I've heard about some of the take homes that I've heard about. You're like up all night trying to solve it. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, I guess I say when I when I say cheat, you're not having a hand code in front of somebody, right? Like you can actually go do something, Google, Stack Overflow, the stuff that you do in a regular day. Yeah, except it's a, it's a ridiculously hard problem that in the workplace might take like a you know a whole sprint to do, and instead they're like, "Hey, get this done overnight." Right, and then we're gonna ship it. Tomorrow. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna see how well you do if if you right. do it overnight. Like they're giving you a hard problem that they don't expect. To, I don't. They don't expect to be fully done in the night, but to see how far along you get and you know what your your take is on the problem. Interesting. What was number two? Multi person. Multi person, yes. really? Twenty five percent. I like I like multi person better than one person. There's something creepy about being in a room with one person. Because you can focus on somebody that maybe doesn't scare you so bad in a in a group of people, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, one person seems very confrontational. Hmm. But with six it's like, okay. <laughs> I got this. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe. But I mean, if you were coming at it from that point of view, you would think that it'd be like, oh my gosh, there's six of them and only one of me. But if it was just one person, then it's just one-on-one. You're if it was like, one, it's like, oh crap, I got to carry this conversation. I've got to, am I being, am I talking too much? Am I not talking enough with six people? It's like, shoot, you just hang on. Hour <laughs> 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 you're done, whatever. Hang on. Maybe you got to, maybe you didn't. Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, speaking of hanging on, do you would you like another joke? Yeah, yeah. Okay, how about this one then? Um, tell me why hasn't Marvel put advertisements on the Hulk? I mean, his clothes just like rip off of him. Mm-hmm. Something smash. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why they haven't because he's essentially a giant banner. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> uh, 
I, I, of course, like, you know, like I, I credit people. So that one's from Lars, but you know, I, I ruined the way they originally give them to me. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, I appreciate it. I, and I've uh, got I've, more of these awful jokes too. So, you know, just wait for it. <laughs> just wait for it. I mean, at this rate, I'm going to need a new job. You know what? I might get a job cleaning mirrors. I could see myself doing that. <laughs> it's a job I can see myself doing. Hey, back to back to ripping clothes hey, wait, off. Can, no, we, he's still can we get a survey here that's like in line with that? He's still struggling. The mirrors. Did you get it, Joe? Uh, yeah, of course. Hey, do you lie? Wait, uh, what was the joke? Yeah, exactly. No, what was the, <laughs> you, you can I see might get a job cleaning mirrors. It's a job I can see myself doing. Oh, I got yeah, it. Yeah. So, right. uh, <laughs> consistent with the Hulk joke. Oh, that one was from Mike RG, of course. Um, Well done. uh, The the mirror joke that was. Uh, Consistent with our Hulk uh, joke here, then, uh, like, you know, because he has to get dressed. So how do you put your shoes on? Right? So this came up here in my house. I'm curious. I'm really curious to know how how this goes. But here's your choices. Sock, sock, shoe, shoe, just in case I decide I only want socks on. (laughs) Or... Sock shoe, sock shoe. You can't have a foot partially dressed. Or shoe, sock, shoe, sock. Or wait. Uh, <laughs> or socks. You don't wear socks with boat shoes. Or shoes. It's a flip flop life for me. I actually like the survey a whole lot. Yeah, because awesome. I had to think about it. <laughs> After there's, I read it, I was like, "Huh." What a- there's one definite answer here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this, yeah, like this is right up there. Like, do you put one leg, you know, do you put the left leg in first or the right leg in, or, or do you put both legs in first when you put your pants on? You know, like obviously it's you put them both on. Same yeah, top right in there. Right. So, yeah. I mean, this, an, this answer is kind of like that too. Like, you just got to get it arranged properly. You got to set things up. That means you got to sit down. Like, no, got time to- <laughs> no. <laughs> No, it's still hanging on the hanger. It's already perfect that way. And you just jump into it. Jump in. And when you do it, it comes off the hanger because they're just like clipped on. Yep. I don't, I don't know how you how you hang your clothes out. You guys kill me. All right. <laughs> that does it for clothing blocks. Clothing blocks. <laughs> hey, hey, one last joke. One well, I don't know. Do you want do you want one last because I'm kind of torn. Like it's a do you want to hear a COVID joke? Because I don't know if it's too soon. Do you want a COVID joke? I mean, whatever. Just do it. <laughs> oh, I'm on the record as no, but yes. <sighs> Never mind. I don't want to spread it. Oh. <laughs> Another oh, one gosh. from Mike RG. Thank you. Yes. Good. <laughs> got me. You got me. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about clients with off line operation. So this is kind of going back to this world that I mentioned of like the calendaring app, right? And like complications that might arise from there. Yeah, there's lots of ways to store data. So we 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 mentioned relational a lot tonight, of course, NoSQL, but also sometimes you just have a full on copy of the data on different clients. Yeah, and and Outlaw actually talked about this with the calendars, right? Although you said something that was a little bit different than how they put it. In that you said that there would be um, copies or replicas on everything. What they actually said is when you do these calendar type things on all the mobile devices, your your phone, your your tablet, whatever, 
each one of them acts as a leader, which it makes sense because you might write a calendar entry onto your phone while you're offline. Right. And then when the thing comes back online, then it now needs to sync up with all the other leaders out there. Cause you could have done it to on your tablet. You could have done it on your phone. You could have done it on a laptop. You could have done it everywhere. And then they've, they've all got to reconcile at the end. I could have sworn that was given as a leaderless example though. No, this was actually, this was in the same section with the, um, multi-leader replication. And here was an interesting thing that I did not know. So CouchDB was designed specifically for this type of application, which is the multi-leader offline need to resync when it comes online thing. So uh, anybody out there that is planning on doing some sort of task management thing or, or calendar type application, you might want to take a look at CouchDB. Does so like handle the merging for you? Like I guess it's got like client versions of it that can kind of sync up. I, I don't know. I don't it's know. A cool take on it. Yeah, yeah they just ca- they called it out. It just reminds me though that like you hear. Cause I remember like a few years back we were at like a a JavaScript meetup or something like that. Like remember when we used to go to those? I do remember those. And and like you know things like CouchDB would get just a bad name. Right, like there'd be somebody there that would just hate, like, oh, we used it for X, Y, and Z, or we used Mongo for this problem, and it was just awful ball, and we had all these problems, and 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 like the thing from this book that just it uh like just kind of beats into your head though is it's like okay, well, you got to make sure you're using the right technology for the right use case. Exactly. So, you know, if you had a rough go of it with CouchDB, there's a possibility that you know you were just using the wrong technology at the time for that problem. And did you not like the database? Or did you not like the problems that you're trying to solve with that database, which are, you know, hard? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So the next section that they jumped into, and this is kind of interesting because we're, we're using one of them right now, is collaborative editing, right? So they were talking about things like Google Docs. They called out Etherpad. I'd never heard of this one. Um, I mean, there, there's tons of them out there, right? Like a OneNote probably, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one note. I was thinking that would oh. be Etherpad. Might be Etherpad. Could be Ether, Ether. I don't know. Or data. You know, VS Code uh, has that uh, the live sharing, and um, JetBrains now has it with uh, Code With Me. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so cool. those are all really cool. And they said basically these act like multi-leader things as well because you change your changes are saved to your local version. So, like, let's say you're in a Google Doc, your local version is probably the browser cache or something or or browser storage. And then it syncs that up to some other replica that then gets pushed out to other users' browsers that are doing it, right? So, um, this is another form of that multi-leader type setup. Man, yeah, I, I'm just, like, struggling now because the the whole realization that the calendar example was under the multi-leader and not the leaderless, even with the Google doc example, I'm like, man, why would that not be a leaderless example? Like, uh, I, I'm trying to think of like, well, how would it, what would a leaderless example be then? I haven't but read I that guess part. Get Cassandra. Ahead, but would you say? Cassandra is like the, it's the, the example I always see given for leaderless. And actually, it's been a long time since I've, I've seen highlights in the book for a leader list, but I don't remember and I haven't reread it yet. Yeah. I've got to read it. Uh, my guess is 
Well, I, I guess, actually, I don't. I guess know. I don't mean. I guess I don't mean technology like the 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 database behind it. I was just thinking more of like a, a use case. Yeah, because because Google Docs it. and calendar applications, those are use cases, not databases. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna have to read it, so I, I can't say anything on it. So we threw this in here too. We talked about the whole problem when when in a multi leader setup you know, the network went down and it comes back up later. Conflict resolution is actually a bit of a big deal. And this is like one of the major thorns in the side of the multi-liter replicas. Um, so you think about this, like there's all kinds of situations where this becomes a problem. You have the, the networks are down in between two data centers and you write the same columns on the same record in both places, which one wins. It's not necessarily that it can be a time-based thing, right? Because it it doesn't matter that I modified the record first or Joe did or Outlaw did. If all three of us modified the same record, how do you pick which one is the winner, right? Like, you know, if I change the description on a product, what makes yours more right than mine or more or mine more right than yours? Like it, it, it could be time. Maybe it has nothing to do with time. It's it, like, those are the types of problems that you end up running into. Yeah. They actually mentioned that, um, depending on what your use case is and the technology behind it, you know, it could be, um, either the, the conflict, you try to resolve the conflict on the right in which case the server has to like make a decision. And so maybe it could try to do a merge strategy and get came up uh, as part of that, or maybe it could, um, you know, just pick one, you know, based on some kind of uh, value like time or whatever, like, you know, whatever it's in, whatever it's reason is it picks, it picks one um, or the other strategy was that it would do, it would force it on read. And so the application developer could then be given back a data structure that contains both changes in full. And then you would say like which one you want to be uh, the one to, to win. And, and then it would write back that change based on whatever that um, uh, the user said. And, and you've kind of seen examples like that in um, I think Google docs does that occasionally where it could be like, Hey, there was a conflict. Which one of these is, is correct. And Confluence, um, Alassian Confluence, I think, does that same thing. In the case of conflicts, uh, it can say, like, hey, which version is the one? And also an add-on to Confluence, which is, um, uh, what's the drawing package? Gliffy? No. Gliffy. Yeah, yeah. Gliffy. Uh, I think it does the same thing, which may be just building on top of what Alassian already has in there for Confluence. But Hey, and the important part of what you just said there is, this is ways trying to automate it. When you try to automate it, there are sometimes some features built in, like you said, maybe timestamp type things for simple. But a lot of times what these tools have built in for the multi-leader replication is they allow you to plug in your own custom logic, right? So a lot of what you were just saying is their custom logic applications or algorithms that were written on top of it to say, Hey, we don't know how to merge or resolve this conflict. So our 
our custom code we wrote is going to send it back to the application to let the user make the decision in the application. So that's why it's not, it's complicated, right? Like it's not just an easy button on any of these things, which is why a lot of times people will choose not to do the multi-leader thing because you got to come up with some, some, uh, some time to write this code to make this stuff work. That, that was on the on write example was that, um, there was a, a database or whatever it storage is that I'd never heard of, uh, but Bucaro, Bucardo, um, but it would allow you to, it would, it would provide you a handler that you could, um, basically like a callback, right? Like it would say, Oh, there's a, there's a conflict here and it would call your method and you could make the decision as to like how to do the merge and, um, it would write back and it was specifically a Perl, uh, Perl script. You could yeah, write a little for bit of Perl yeah. that you would add back to it. Yeah. And couch DB was the example that they gave for the on read conflict where it had both sets of both, both changes that the, in the app, the d- application developer could receive both and decide how they wanted to present that to the user to make the decision. And here's what stinks, right? You can take it a step further. I mean, just with the three of us, if three of us wrote three different documents and then, and then somebody else gets it, it's no longer just merging two conflicts. There's three and you might have to handle in number of conflicts to, you know, however you plan on doing that. So again, it just, there's some complexity that comes along for the ride with being able to have these multi right leaders. You know, go ahead. One last thing. So you brought up the Amazon thing earlier, and this is where they were talked about in this particular section. And what they said is Amazon had done a good job on, on like, if you add items to a cart, then that would get replicated across multiple um, leaders pretty well. But where they kind of had a bad uh, setup was when you removed items from the cart, it didn't replicate that stuff the same way. So, somebody would would reload their page and all of a sudden their items would be back in their cart that they had thought they had removed. And so they, I guess their algorithms for handling these multi-liter rights um, weren't perfect for all situations in your shopping cart. So when you get an Amazon owner order and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't think I ordered that. <laughs> right? That's why. And that's, that's also why they have so much money. Uh, exactly. You ordered more than you thought you did because yeah. you tried to remove some stuff. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Makes sense. Uh, so I was just thinking of an example of, of multi-leader. Um, Git is a pretty good example where, you know, Git is not, or maybe it is a database, but it's kind of a situation where you go and you clone a replica of some data that you've got locally. You make your changes, you commit locally, and then eventually you say, I want to push this back to the leader. Well, when you've been working locally, you've been treating that as the, basically as the uh, leader, you've been working slowly with that. And then it's time to kind of synchronize your changes. And that's where you can get into conflict, you know, like merge conflicts, all that sort of thing. So it's kind of like a really slow motion example of a multi-leader system where you're committing locally and also synchronizing those changes occasionally with a, a more prominent uh, you know, leader or a leader that's got more authority than yours, but you know, even so you've kind of got a multi-leader setup, which is pretty cool. That is. And, and the conflict resolution is on the person doing that merge. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. So I did look to see if anyone has built a database on top of Git, and, uh, <laughs> there are and several people have done it. It was like Git Rose is the, the most prominent, uh, one on GitHub I found. 
That's pretty cool. But yeah, it literally just checks stuff into GitHub for you and like saves it as files and you can, you know, have history and all the benefits of Git conflict resolution. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. So, um, multi-leader replication top- topologies is something we kind of hinted at a little bit. Um, but basically the topology is just a description of how the replications communicate. So topology, you can kind of think of it as being a map, like this replica talks to that replica, this leader talks to that leader and you can draw some arrows. We won't to try to describe any pictures here, kind of maybe. Oh man, come on! There were I, I just re- briefly, on all seriousness, though, the, the, this was pretty key to the to the conversation. The, the three types of t- topologies that they talked about, which they did draw, but I mean, you they could did. you could picture it really easily in your head that they they just talk about four um, replicas and the 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 different strategies. One was circular. So, you know, in my mind, like I immediately thought of token ring. I don't know if you guys yeah. thought oh, of totally. that. But IBM. Yeah. With <laughs> yeah. the way that the, the network would work there. So like in the, to- in the, in the circular example, uh, you know, one replica sends all of its changes to the next replica, that replica then takes all of the ones it received from the previous plus anything it has and then sends it to a third one. And it just keeps going around the, around the circle like that. And so yeah, and it works great for even or odd. Doesn't matter. Um, yeah. As long as there's more than one, you can do it. And you kind of read from the right and right to the left. Yeah. Then there was the, the star uh, pattern, which you could also refer to as like, I, I've heard more often heard it referred to as like a hub and spoke, but you know, there's one replica in the center of the three of the four, sorry. And uh, the other three read and write through it. Um, so it's, it's in charge of distributing it and the one that's at the hub. Yeah. yeah. And you could kind of envision that that thing would be like of, of the different strategies that are here, like that one might be the most brittle because if that hub goes down, then you have this whole like, okay, which one is, you know, okay. I realized that we don't have like a single leader quote, but we kind of do. So one of us need to decide who's the new hub. So, so you have like your same, uh, uh, leader election kind of strategies to solve in that hub and spoke or, or star topology. And then the other one was, um, all to all. So in these four, um, replicas draw read and write arrows between all four to all four. Right. And then that way, that one actually seemed like the, at least maybe the most um it may be hard but also uh the least problematic in terms of like it was the mo- how about i word it this way it seems the most fault tolerant of all of them because everything is talking to everything and so if any one of those went down nothing changes like everybody's still talking to everybody. But in the case of the circular one, if you lot, you know, if you picture you have one at the 12 o'clock, one at three o'clock, six o'clock and nine o'clock, and you, you lose that one at nine o'clock. Well, when six o'clock goes to communicate to nine, he has to know like, Oh no, he's down. I need to go straight to 12. So there's like, there's like a little bit of latency there that he has to figure it out before the circle continues again. Kind of situation. But I'm with you. The all to all, while it might be the most fault tolerant, it is also the most rife with the 
the conflict resolution that's going to have to happen all over the place. Oh yeah, right. it's and and definitely a chatty chatty Kathy, right? Like yeah. you know, so you need to have the the bandwidth to handle it. So depending on what type of uh, data that you're trying to synchronize, it might not be you know the most performant because if you have like you know super super large uh, bits of data, like if this was binary data that was in your database. You know, maybe that's not the the best one then, because those those might be very expensive reads and writes that are just for replication, not to actually go to your users. There's another problem too with uh, what they call overrun with all to all. Whereas uh, if you've got like a, a circle and one of your nodes has a much faster network or is just much faster than the others, then it doesn't really matter too much. That one will just read fast and it'll pass on its stuff a little bit faster than the others. But overall, things still kind of even out. When you're going all to all and you've got one that's significantly or, you know, some small number of them that are that are faster than everything else, then it can kind of start getting ahead. And then you start having more and more problems with those causal relationships that we mentioned out. And that's something that you don't really get with the ring, which that's is kind of cool. And also, uh, you know, the, you hit the problem with the, you nail the, the problem with the, the start technologies. You lose that middle one and you got the problem. And then, um, the same with the ring too is like you, you move, you lose one, you break the flow. It's not as bad because you don't, you're not missing that kind of one. Then now suddenly nothing can talk, but it still has to be manually repaired. So yeah, it's all just rough. Yeah. And they mentioned uh, one kind of strategy for dealing with the kind of overrun problem was just keeping those uh, version vectors, which is kind of like the logical clocks we talked about, which, which kind of helps you from going backwards. So it's like a, a built-in throttling almost. Yep. Hmm. Yep. And then uh, the, they also mentioned that these are uh, three common patterns, but you can actually, like people will do common, you know, kind of manually set um, their own topology sometimes. So if you know that you've got a extra fast node, maybe you'll connect it to less or maybe to more or maybe, you know, whatever you might like, you know, based on your geography, you might have some sort of other kind of pattern that's maybe a mix of star and uh, all to all. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is depending on what your, your use case is, you could actually f- see, you could easily envision like a world where, uh, you know, maybe across the, the open internet, you're going in one particular pattern like a, a circular or or a, a star pattern, for example. But then once you get inside the data center, you might do something like an all to all within that given data center. So, like if you were to picture like the U.S., for example, maybe there's like uh, uh, a data center in Texas, another data center in uh, Atlanta, and another data center in California. And you know maybe because Texas is centrally located, maybe it gets treated as the hub in that star topology. Um, type of scenario. But once you get inside the California data center, then, you know, you might have a hundred servers in there that are all replicating amongst each other. You know, so, I mean, there could be a combination as the point. Yep. Well, with that, we will have uh, some links to resources that we like. Uh, Obviously the book's going to be one of them. And um, well, I mean, we, I don't, we can't, I, we can't rave enough about this book. I actually, I was thinking about this. I would have to guess that this would probably be, would it be fair to say that collectively this might be our, each of our favorite book, like all three of us, would we each say that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking this, I, this is what I learned the most about. And it, it's even, it kind of like shines a light on things that I've kind of thought about or kind of half new and like, 
help to explain why they were, you know, just kind of filled in some gaps for me. Yeah. I, I mean, it's definitely, there are a lot of other books that have a lot of great things that we've read in it, but for some reason, this one just makes me think about problems that I wouldn't have otherwise taken the time to think about. And for that reason, I just, I love this book. So definitely, um, if you don't have this book, if you haven't read the book and you would like to have a copy of the book, uh, head to this, uh, episode's show notes, codingblocks.net slash episode one six one and leave a comment there uh, for your chance to win a copy of the book. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Hey, you may get a flat top picture too. If you, uh, Oh man, <laughs> play cards, I don't right? that exists. I'm sure it does oh. somewhere. Uh, well, we have Photoshop then your, your days are numbered, buddy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so tip of the week, I have one this week. This is a Jay-Z OG tip of the week right here, Look at that. Uh, which I stole from uh, coworker Chris. Hey, Chris. Thank you. Uh, I have never heard of .htp files. It's uh, just a file extension .htp. Uh, but what's special about it is that IntelliJ, and with a plug-in VS Code, uh, knows how to interpret these files. And what a HTTP file is, is basically a, connect, a collection of... Uh, Essentially, curl commands. Basically, these are uh, you know gets, posts, deletes, puts, whatever you want to do. Except it's laid out in a really convenient way that is easy to read and easy to run. And it's you kind of got to see it. We'll have a link in the, the show notes here. But the deal is, you have a list, and it says you'll say maybe post and then the URL, and then you've got a couple lines where you can add headers or authorization, wherever you want to, if you got them. And if you've got a, a JSON body, you just paste that JSON in there. You don't have to set up all these arguments. If you've ever seen a curl command, uh, it's pretty pretty hard to read. You know, it gets long, especially if you've got JSON. And if you need to pass this JSON file because it's too long, then you need to figure out how to get that binary file up there. And it's one of those things where, like, I'm always Googling for the arguments. And so, um, ooh, I'll fix that link. It's got a parenthesis on the end. Sorry that. Hopefully, I just fixed it. Uh, but... And so the deal is it's much easier to write than curl, which is nice. But the real magic is the IDE support because I can open up a file .http extension and have, you know, say 20 order effectively curl commands. But instead of a shell script where I have to run the whole thing or have to comment out the parts I don't want, I can just go hit the little play button next to each request in order to run it and see a history of the, uh, the commands that have run. I can also go up to the top, click run all. I can do things like set an environment fi- uh, file that will change like things like the URL or pop in passwords. I can have variables, looping constructs, and all the things that kind of make shell scripts nice and you can do, except I can run it piecemeal. I can go to line 137 and click play and issue just that command. So it's kind of like having Postman, but all in one file. That Dude. is awesome. It's that is super awesome. Convenient. I mean, because like... Oh, sorry. No, good. Well, I was going to say, like, how many of us have used, like, Postman for your Elasticsearch queries? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, like, immediately I was thinking, like, oh, well, this is a game changer. Yep. So, uh, the project I've been working on uh, now at work, I have Elastic.htp file that has, like, a thing that I can click here to delete index, click here to 
create one, click here, do whatever. And I can set variables in that. And unlike shell script, I don't have to worry about running the first three lines to get my variables. And then if I need to run the 11th call on the file, I, I can just run in various pieces. It's all set up for it. But also the beauty of this too, though, is that I can commit it. Unlike yes. Yes. Postman uses, I can commit this yep. in my, as you know, live aside, live aside my code, beside my code. Hey, and yep. what I was going to call out here, when was the last time you saw any extension that had a perfect five-star rating? <laughs> this thing has, it, it's 4.96 out of five stars, and it's got 269 ratings with 1.6 million installs in Visual Studio Code. Like, yep. that doesn't happen. Like, everybody loves this that finds so out good. about it. Where do you see it's the like, as soon as you see it, you're like, like, I that, know that this works. It's up on the, uh, if you go, if you click on the link to the Visual Studio Marketplace, where you see this underneath REST client on the page, you'll actually see in green there all those things. Oh, I see it now in green. Okay, because I was like looking at the stars and I only saw like five out of five. And I'm like, where's he getting this extra granularity? Yeah, man. Somebody yeah. somebody there was a poo-poo butthead. It was like, nope, I can't <laughs> right. I can't possibly get this thing a five can't star. Can't give it a five star. Yeah. It's yeah. four it, star. It's a nothing's four. perfect. That's right. <laughs> And this is a, I only kind of hit on the, the top of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. There's like all sorts of stuff. There's UI support for like adding requests and stuff. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, let me go find an example of a post. Like, no, just click it. Also, if you've got a curl command, you can convert it. You can just paste it in there and it'll go ahead and convert it into the format. But really, it's one of those things like once you see your first request, you're like, oh, I know how to do this forever. Now. Yeah, I'm never going back. Right. They've got they've got making GraphQL requests in here, too. So yeah. if that's your cup of tea. Yep. Bring it. As much as I like Postman, like when they went to the standalone product and they tried to make you create profiles and yes. folders and save oh, everything, wow. it just become uh, I'm I'm not a, f- a huge fan anymore. Yeah, log in and you know do this and like no, I just want the stupid little thing that it used to be. Yep. <laughs> Why is it so complicated? <laughs> For real. Uh, okay. Um. All right. So for my uh. 35 tips of the week. Okay. So starting with, I thought we would start with iTerm 2. Cause I don't know that we've ever discussed iTerm 2. Have we? Oh, yeah, it's totally been on our like yearly developer tool things. For oh, sure. okay. Okay. So for those that don't know, iTerm 2 is a, uh, terminal for Mac OS. Now here's why you're like, well, wait, what Mac already has terminal. Why would I want iTerm 2? Well, to me, I don't know what your justifications are, uh, and I'll let you speak to that. But for me, the big selling point was that like I can open up multiple panes inside of the same tab within it. Whereas like if I'm using terminal and I want to open up, I can open up a new tab easy enough, but I'm going to have to like flip between all of them in order to see it. And I might want to have like multiple different panes open at one time. And so that's the beauty of iTerm too. You can easily create these new panes. So if you want to, you open up that first one and now you want to open up a second one to split vertically, you can just command D and boom, you get an, it'll, it'll evenly split whatever the window size is. It'll evenly split it vertically and you have two side by side panes that you could execute commands. And so like maybe one of them is like, uh, you're using, uh, Jay-Z's favorite tool canines, you know, you might have that open in one so that you can kind of like monitor your uh, Kubernetes cluster while in the other one, you might be executing commands and, uh, you know, scaffolding up an environment or whatever. Um, or you can split, 
uh, horizontally, if that's your thing, because you're a monster, then you can command shift, command shift D. So just add the, uh, the shift to it and it'll split a window, uh, horizontally. Um, which, yeah, I mean, I'm just joking. There's valid use cases for that. And then, nope. and then, uh, you know, if you do have multiple tabs open, that's great too. Cause you can like command and then the number for the tab and it'll show you the number at the top of each tab, like which, which one it is. But what it doesn't show you is that if you were split the, uh, a single pane into multiple, then you're like, well, how do I navigate around? Well, it's pretty simple. Command option and then whatever your appropriate arrow keys were, would be. So command option left or right or up or down, depending on how you ended up splitting it. So um, pretty cool. Uh, if you've never tried it, then, you know, give iTerm2 a try and you'll fall in love. All right. So then uh, my, that was, that was like 33 of them. Um, so then for number 34, I guess I fell short on 35 math. <laughs> whatever uh, is a hack that I had where like we've talked about my love for my uh, ridiculously oversized. Um, it's not even a mouse pad. It's a mouse mat because it's so glorious and awesome in its size and you know, like Marvel and its beauty. But um, you know, I was using my laptop as, you know, not connected to anything else, just, you know, laptop, but, like specifically on the, you know, some of the Macs, right? Like there's, if you ever notice like where it tapers off on the bottom, like there are like, you know, vent holes for it to, to bring in fresh air for cooling and whatnot. But I kind of wanted to like bring it up off the desk a little bit since it was on this like fabric instead of on like a smooth desk. If it was on a smooth desk, maybe it would have like, you know, there'd be less friction so that the air would like flow and good enough. And I was, and, and I wouldn't care. But in this case, because it was fabric, I don't know, something in my mind was just like, Oh, well that's going to slow down the airflow. So I need to improve the airflow. So I came up with this silly hack because I was like, you know, what would be cool for uh laptops in general and I'm surprised that this isn't a thing, like a, a, a widely selling thing. Like, you know, I mean, there are some examples of what I'm going to say, but it's not as widely popular as what I would have expected and no like one winner from what I researched, but just a simple, very short wedge kind of thing to where it, you know, just, just picture like literally, like if you were to make this thing out of wood, right. You know, just a simple wedge that you would, you would put on their desk and it would be short too, like, you know, no taller than an inch. I mean, we're talking about really short. And then the, the laptop sits on top of that. And then, uh, you know, that way the laptop is kind of at an angle, but not enough of an angle to where, uh, typing on the laptop's keyboard would be bad for your wrists. Right. But just enough so that it would kind of like raise it up off the surface and it could breathe a little bit better and get some cooling and everything. So my, my little hack for this was I decided to use an architect scale ruler. Have you ever seen an architectural scale ruler? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Is that the three way one? Joe for the win. If you've ever seen the, 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 you know, if you were looking at it from a profile, it's like a, a, you know, one of those throwing star triangle things. Uh, but you know, yeah, this the three sided, uh, ruler. It's so called an architectural scale ruler, but 
that just happens to be about the size because these things are just over uh, 12 inches and a little bit of extra uh, to where you can set your laptop on it and the feet that the, like the rubber feet that are already on it, you can put it to where the rubber feet catch that. And then it, it, it's just enough off, off the table to where it can get a little bit of airflow. And you know, my, uh, my, my CDO is okay. You know, it's awesome you say that because I, I was just showing, I have a piece of wood trim that I have mm-hmm. on my desk sitting underneath my laptop for the same exact reason. Yep. Just, just so wait, you, you put it at the front or the back? I put mine in the back because that's where the vents are. Okay. Yeah. Well, the vents are on the sides. Well, not on my, not on my uh, windows one. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so uh, I have my Mac up on a stand that is next to my monitor. And then I have my windows laptop that is down below it on the desk that I have propped up on the, on the trim to, to give it some airflow. But yeah, I mean, same type thing. It's a simple thing. You don't need anything super expensive. Just raise it a little, but yet it's so surprising. Like cause when I had this idea, I was like, there's surely there's gotta be something. And this idea came to mind and I'm like, no, there's gotta be something better (laughs) because in, in really like, there really is an opportunity like, you know, somebody from Shark Tank is going to make this because like ideally Dumb. you would want the top of that thing to be uh, uh, a little bit more grabby, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's because especially like not all laptops are going to have the same feet as the laptop that I have. So, that, you know, it might not work as well. But if it was a little bit more grabby, then who would care? Right. Right. But the reason why you want that that ruler, you want the that kind of width is because if it was too narrow, then the laptop would kind of pivot back and forth. You know, as you like have both hands on it and then you take one hand off, then it's going to like pivot down on that hand that's still on it. Right. And you don't want that. You want it to, to be sturdy. Totally. So silly little life hack. I like it. So I was going to share this with you guys earlier because, all right. So first let me set the backdrop. Um, been working on a very enterprisey application of late. And by very enterprisey, I'm talking um, heavy dependency injection, heavy configuration files everywhere, heavy use of factories and and things that you just can't follow. Like you you can't navigate to anything because it's all abstracted by 50 interfaces, right? So me and this other guy, Sean, are working on this thing. And he's like, man, I found something you're going to love. And... And there is on GitHub a FizzBuzz Enterprise Edition that is springified with all the glorious abstraction to drive you crazy that you ever want to see. And and it's absolutely hysterically funny. So they actually say on here, hey, you know, this is supposed to be a bit of a joke, right? Like down at the very bottom, and they say under the, the contributing, hey, although this project is intended as satire, because FizzBuzz, we've talked about it in the past. It's super simple, right? Um, if number's divisible by three, write Fizz. If it's divisible by five, write Buzz. And if it's divisible by three and five, then write FizzBuzz. That's the application. Else print the, the number. Oh, and print the number. Else print the number otherwise, yeah. So if you go into the source, man, it's so great. 
if you go source and then they've got main java com serious company business java fizzbuzz package naming package right like so you got 5000 directories nested then you go into the impl directory because of course every good java app needs impls um then click on the factories folder man it's hilarious you've got the buzz strategy factory the buzz string printer factory the buzz string re- returner factory like no joke. Would you get into enterprise software? This is the kind of stuff you'll run into because it's like, we can't have any hard new ups of, of classes where it's all going to be done via auto wiring and DI and spring. And it, and it's mind numbing. Like it really is. So if you want to see what a real enterprise application looks like, it's funny that they did it here, but this isn't far off guys. My yeah. eyeballs are puking. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. So that was funny and, and truly excellent. So thank you, Sean, for that. And then I was looking around in our amazing Slack channel because we really do have just awesome people and content all over the place there. So if you're not a member of it, hit us up and send us your email, DM it to us. We'll add you, but our buddy, Jamie Taylor, who does the .NET core show. He also does tabs and spaces. He also does the waffling Taylor's podcast. Like the guy has, he's, he's into the podcasting world for sure. Um, he shared something that is really cool. If you're doing local development and you ever need to do like secure socket stuff, like if TLS communication or anything, you always need certificates. Somebody wrote uh follow. So tile, I don't know. Um, wrote this thing called MK cert and it's a simple tool for setting up certificates on Mac and windows for developers. So you don't have to do any configuration. You don't have to do anything hard. You just basically say, Hey, I want to create some certs that I can use locally for doing HTTPS type stuff. Right? So, um, have a link in the uh, show notes for this, but it might be a way to ease some pains when you're trying to do some stuff locally. It basically sets up your local system as a CA and installs a root certificate in your local system's trust store. All for you. And and if you've ever done this on your own, <laughs> that's not, um, yeah, it's not an easy set of steps if you've never done it before. So being able to do this with a MK cert dash install is pretty beautiful. You could <laughs> brew install this thing. Isn't that awesome? Or app install it depending on your flavor. I wonder, do they have a chocolatey? They probably do. They do have choc- Choco install MK cert. There you go, man. Like th- or this scoop. is like two lines of anything on every single OS. Like that's absolutely beautiful. So yeah, um, thanks to Jamie for sticking that that out there in our tips channel in our coding block Slack. So um, awesome. that's all I got this go around. Well, let's go play some video games. What do you say? It's early, man. It's only oh. midnight. <laughs> Going to play some Mortal Kombat? Did you know that Mortal Kombat was actually based on a Scandinavian church song? No. Did you know that? Hold on. <laughs> I can't think of the song right now. I don't get it. It's a finish him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's really good. I'll sing the actual song. <laughs> Mortal Kombat. Did it? Did it? Finish him. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's from uh, 
Gregory. Wait, I like that. No, I think that it's was nice, awesome. nice, his name came up before, and I think we decided he said it's just pronounced Gregory, right? Yep. Not Gregory. Oh, no, sorry, Greg. 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 Okay. Yep. I just call him Greg. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Greg. Well, this, but the Slack name says Gregory, so I don't know. Yeah, that's what confused me. But yeah, at any rate, I wanted to say thank you anyway. So I'm sure by now he's figured it out, and he's like, "Great, thanks for butchering my name." Right? Yeah, naming is hard. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this show on uh, multi-leader replication, and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. In case you know, if you just happen to like friend hand you a link or a device to listen to, uh, you know, you could now you could subscribe to us if you haven't already. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we greatly appreciate all reviews that we get. So if you haven't already, you could leave us a review at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And if you have already left us a review, maybe there's another destination that you haven't left us a review. So you can leave us a second one. And that would be your way of giving us like, you know, uh, a cup of coffee or something. Totally. Hey, and while you're up there at, at our site at codingblocks.net, check out our amazing copious show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel. And as mentioned, because our Slack thing is busted, you know, um, just DM us with your email and we'll get you added to the channel. Yeah, and uh, we're also on the Twitter. We're on the Twitterverse. Yep. That's right. Uh, I, I tweeted earlier today, even. Wasn't a very good one, uh, but I, you know, uh, some, some are. So uh, you can go to cookingblocks.net and you can find uh, all our tweeters and other social links at the top of the page. I got to find this tweet. What was it? Is it really? I think I was it. flirting with other podcasts again. I do that. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? Okay. Moonlighting. I see. Mm. Yep. Yep. So yeah, stay tuned. Uh, you know, I may have uh, another appearance coming up. So, you know, hey. Just saying. You're such a flirt. <laughs>